This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Sebastian Modak, travel journalist and current editor-at-large at Lonely Planet. Born in the US to a Colombian mother and an Indian father, Sebastian was a world explorer from the get-go. During his formative early years, Sebastian's family moved to new countries frequently, giving him an ability to bond quickly with others and an aptitude for observing and appreciating other cultures, qualities that would serve Sebastian well when he landed a very coveted job as the New York Times 52 Places Traveler in 2019. In this episode, Sebastian shares stories and lessons from the 52 weeks he spent visiting 52 different places, making lifelong friendships and inspiring thousands of people through a constant stream of storytelling. Plus, how 52 weeks on the road impacted Sebastian's concept of home, his go-to tactics for finding a good story fast, and why being honest about your ignorance as a traveler is a shortcut to bonding with locals. Welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. I'm so excited to have you, Sebastian. It's really exciting to be here, yeah. I was listening to some of the episodes. I've had some fascinating people on, for sure. I love doing this and hearing people's stories. It's, it's so interesting. And if you've listened, then you know that I always like to jump in with the question, where did your love of travel originate? For me, I think my love for travel started very, very early. I think before I remember. Um, honestly, I was very fortunate that it was instilled in me from a very young age. So my mother is from Colombia and my father's from India. And I think as a result, they kind of decided to just move constantly as a compromise of where, where to live, where we moved every four years or so. So I was born in the States, but left when I was two. And we were in Hong Kong and Australia and India and then Indonesia, where I spent high school um, before coming to the States for college. So there was, I was constantly moving. We were constantly taking vacations wherever from wherever we were living at the time. And so while I was raised sort of without the idea of roots or, or a home, I was raised with the idea of travel being really important and, you know, connecting with other cultures being really important. So, yeah, I think that's kind of where the love for travel came. So I can't really pinpoint it on a specific incident. It was always kind of there. I was very lucky and very fortunate to have that kind of uh open international upbringing. That is such an interesting transformative experience because I remember when I was a kid, I have a super boring background. Like both my parents are English. They're from the same town. Mm. And I grew up there and, you know, just very standard stuff. But I remember when someone new would come and especially if they were from another country and they would come to our school, everybody was very intrigued. Mm. And these kids would have to find a way to kind of assimilate did you become very good at, at fitting in? I mean, yes, but also for the most part, with the exception of really Australia, I was always in international schools, which are their own kind of weird social experiment. But in the sense that like everyone is in the same boat in a lot of ways. So people were for everyone. Everyone was from all over. Everyone's parents moved all the time. So you kind of made friends very quickly and people could disappear, you know, with a month's notice or something. It was an interesting environment to grow up in. And I think when people ask, oh, wasn't it hard? And you didn't have the concept of home and all these things. I think the answer is yes, but also it was all I knew. And when you're a kid, you live in whatever world has been built around you. And that was my world. And that's all I knew. And everyone, my friends were from all over and travel was a big part of my life and from the very beginning. And that's, that was my reality. So I think only in retrospect now do I, you know, there are moments when I miss having had roots or, you know, seeing people who have had friends their entire lives, like people they grew up with. I mean, my oldest friends really are people that I met when I was 15, 16 years old. So I do, I do envy that of other people. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade the experience I had for, for anything just because I felt so fortunate to have had that upbringing and it must have sharpened your skills as an observer as well i imagine and as a storyteller because you must have been exposed to you know so many different cultures and you're just taking it all in at that age when did you realize that 
you wanted to start writing about travel for a living? Yeah, I think the travel writing part of it happened pretty late, honestly. I was always interested in writing. I was always interested in traveling. Um, it took me longer than it probably should have to put those two things together and figure out that I could make that a career. I think I was definitely always interested in telling stories about other other cultures. And I think that was a big part of my goals professionally for the longest time. I, I studied English and history in college, but also minored in music and African studies. So clearly my, my, my interest and my mind was all over the place. And, you know, I played a lot of music growing up and I was very into music from around the world. And I kind of stumbled around a bit after college, figuring out what I wanted to do. I was doing like academic writing for a little bit. Then I got very lucky and I got this, this fellowship to go um, do a documentary project about hip hop music in Botswana. So I went and moved to Botswana for a year and spent, spent a year hanging out with rappers in, in Havarone, Botswana, and then bounced around from there. I was in documentary world. And then finally, I saw a job posting for an editor position at a travel publication. And I said, why not? And I applied and somehow they took me, I think largely because more because of my travel experience than my journalism experience. And I had kept blogs about my travels and things like that, but I never really considered it as a profession until I got very lucky and it, it kind of happened. And, and then it, it made sense. And I, and I think you're right when, when you say that even those early experiences were an asset in crafting this profession and crafting what I do now and traveling for a living in part because I didn't have the reference points that I think you see a lot of people use. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have these old tropes of travel writing, right? Where people are like, oh, this like hip neighborhood is the Brooklyn of Amsterdam or whatever. And to anyone who doesn't live in Brooklyn or doesn't live in New York, is, doesn't, doesn't, is not within that orbit, that is absolutely meaningless. That means nothing to that person. I mean, it doesn't mean anything really at all to begin with, but especially without those reference points. And I think I never had those reference points. I never had a home to compare something to. And I think that was an asset in that I just took things for, for how they were in front of me. And I, I interpreted them as they were. And I um, had kind of an equal respect for different cultures. And, and I had early on, I admitted that I really don't know very much and I don't know much about the world and I'm here to learn. And I was always a guest wherever I was. And I think that philosophy has continued on to what I do now. The story we're going to talk about is the year you spent doing the New York Times 52 places. Mm -hmm. For anyone who isn't familiar, can you give a quick overview of what exactly that is? Yeah, so the 52 places traveler specifically was a bit of a brief experiment that the New York Times did. They've for years and continuing on this year, they put out a list every year of the 52 places to go. And in 2018, for the first time, they decided to hire a 52 places traveler and send one person to all the places on their 52 places list. I got the job in 2019. So I was the second 52 places traveler. And yeah, so what that meant was I applied for the job, not even knowing the list at that point. I got the job, not even knowing the list. And they said, okay, we're about to publish the 52 places list. Here it is. This is where you're going to be spending next year. And it was 52 different places in the world. And so, yeah, I spent a, a year in a different place every week, finding a story, then writing that story taking photographs, doing a lot on social media too. And I was just in go mode for 365 days. I, I think I got back maybe like the 20th of December, 2019 or something. And of course, three months later, the entire world changed forever. Yeah, that's a pretty crazy time to have completed a trip like that kind of idea. Yeah. Filled up on your travel experiences and then you go into lockdown. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, I, I was ready to take a break um, for sure and was ready to stay at home for a little bit. I didn't think it would be quite as long as it was. But again, and this will be a theme throughout. I feel incredibly lucky to have had that experience and to have that experience when I did because I really got, got it under the wire before. I mean, that, that, they stopped doing the 52 Places Traveler, but even if they were to try to do it, it, it would be impossible now. Just navigating the regulations around travel alone um, was a headache to begin with, with visas and everything, but I can't imagine it with COVID, shifting COVID regulations on top of that, you know. I feel like maybe I read this somewhere that you had actually applied in 2018, but didn't get the job then. Yeah. How did you like dust yourself off and think, you know what, I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring again and just try it? Yeah, it was, I mean, as these things generally happen, it was a lot of 
developing circumstances that happened to line up at the, at, at the same time. So 2018, I was working at Condé Nast Traveler and decided I saw that job listing and said, well, I mean, this is a dream. Why not? Um, Try. Is, why, why not? <laughs> so I applied and I went through the process. It was multiple rounds of interviews and I had to send in videos and social media clips and all this, all, all kinds of stuff because it's such a, was such a multimedia role. There was a lot of angles to it. Got through all the interviews, made it to the final round. And I was in Spain visiting family and got a call from someone at the Times well, first I got an email saying, do you have a second to talk? And I was like, I got it. I got the job. I mean, that's the only reason they want to talk, right? Um, so I said, yeah, absolutely. Call me right now. Um, I'll drop everything. And then they called me and told me, listen, you made the final round, but we decided to go with someone else. Just yeah. nice of them to have told me. But it was, it was pretty tough. But, you know, went back to my job at Condé Nast um, and was there for another few months until I was on the receiving end of a round of layoffs. It's media. Mm-hmm. It happens. <laughs> And so that happened in October, which was, I mean, maybe weeks before they put up the announcement for the next 52 Places Traveler. And so I channeled whatever feeling of defeat and sadness and failure that I was feeling having just been laid off from a job that I, I, I loved and put it towards, I said, why not? We'll give this another shot. Timing couldn't be better because I just got out of this other job. And so I put together a whole new application, which was really the challenging part instead of just sending, because I thought I had already put my best foot forward a year before that, right? Um, But anyway, put a whole other application together. And then almost to the day, I think, I got an email that was worded. I don't think this was intentional, but the email was worded almost exactly the same as the one I got in 2018. (laughs) Like literally said, hi, do you have a second to to talk? And I was like, are you kidding? Here we go again. Um, But this time I got on the phone and they said, we'd like to offer you the job, 52 Places Traveler. You leave in three weeks or something. Oh my god! And so exciting. So I had to get my life in order, and then went to stop number one. How did you make your application different and make sure it stands out? Because I feel like I think the last stat I looked at this might have been for 2018 was there at 13,000 applicants. Yeah, How do you stand out among those people? I mean, I felt like I had a head start because I'd gone through the process. I knew what to expect. They knew me already at this point, and after the first application. And in the interim, I had done a lot of traveling for work. So I had kind of new trips I could talk about that I could put into video form. I, I got laid off while I was in Greenland on assignment. Um, so I had just come back with all this Greenland content that wasn't going to get published. So and then, yeah, I mean, I I've shifted the focus a little bit. I, I couldn't remember exactly. I couldn't tell you what exactly I put in the application. So much has happened since. Um, but I just tried to zero in on some of the things that, that I thought would make me Good for the job, and I, I'm 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 close now with the 2018 traveler Jada Yuan as well, and so I was able to kind of pick her brain a little bit as well, and yeah, and then it it just worked out. And what exactly was the scope of work like when they were breaking down exactly what you'd need to produce? What did that look like? It was in- incredibly intimidating. Um, <laughs> it was you know a weekly column that I couldn't miss because you miss one and then it's just going to mount over time. You got 52 weeks to publish 52 stories, right? And so that was anything from, you know, 1,500 to 2,500 words. It's taking all my own photos. So I had to edit those down and submit those. We did a bunch of video content too. So I was doing a lot of video and I had to find a way to upload all of that. Thankfully, I didn't have to edit it, but I just would do these huge kind of footage dumps with explainers of what everything was. And then the poor soul on the other end, the editor on the other end had to make sense of it and turn it into something, which they did to their credit, which is kind of amazing. And then social media was its own full-time job because it was a huge part of the job. It was a lot. It's, it's more, you know, I, I've, I've said this many times, but it was the best job I've ever had and will ever have, I think. Pretty safe to say there's not going to be something like that again. It was also the hardest thing I've ever done. It was incredibly challenging. It pushed my body to limits that I haven't, hadn't seen before. I didn't have a day off for 365 days. My job happened to be pretty great. It was meeting people and going to restaurants and and having new experiences, but it was still a job and I had to treat it like a job. And it was relentless. It was, I did not have a day off. It's kind of a huge assignment. Obviously, it's an incredible privilege to be able to do something like this. But as you said, it's a huge assignment. It's a whole year on the road nonstop. Was it weird for you to just pack up and leave? Was there anything you were worried about leaving behind at home? 
Yeah, I mean, my partner now, fiance for for one. Oh my god, I just assumed that you would have been single during this <laughs> no, time. No, I have an incredibly understanding partner named wow, Maggie. Wow, bless her. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she she saw it as the once in a lifetime experience that it is. She also was very clear that it would be a once in a lifetime experience. She was like, "Cannot pull this again," <laughs> and uh, so that that was definitely the hardest thing to leave behind. Otherwise, I mean, I. Like, like I said, you know, I grew up without roots. I don't, I don't feel a need to necessarily have them if it wasn't for the people like, like my partner. So that, that was the hardest. And, and, you know, we worked it out. She came out to three of the spots to visit. It was a year and a year's a long time, but over the scope of a lifetime, we are getting married this year. It's, it's not a deal breaker by any means, I hope. <laughs> no, I'm sure you were like, okay, I know she's a keeper now for sure. <laughs> she's gonna let me do this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She could deal with this. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, I, I give her a lot of credit because I think if it was a hard year for her as well. Because while I'm having new experiences every day and I'm on, I'm running on adrenaline and every day is different and whatever, she's still in the same apartment with the same routines and the same friends, but just with one big part of those routines missing, right? So it was two very different experiences of that year. I'm, I'm very grateful that she was so understanding. Was this a paid role? I mean, obviously they would have covered all your expenses, but they also give you like a, a contract. Yeah, yeah, I was a salaried New York Times employee for a year. And my, basically most of my entire life was also expensed, right? Because I was staying, living mm-hmm. in hotels and eating every meal in restaurants. So, yeah. And how did you go about planning? I imagine that there was a team to help you with all of the logistics. Yeah, there was there was definitely some people on the on the special projects team at the Times who helped um, and they would help me. They kind of mapped it out to begin with. Um, I think they actually worked with Kayak or something or one of these companies to, to figure out the most optimal route based on flights and seasons and all that. We changed it a bit as we went, um, for sure, just because things would I'd. I'd be stuck in the Falkland Islands for 10 days because of winds and or I'd miss, you know, a flight would be canceled and I'd be stranded in Brazil or whatever. Things would happen and we'd have to adjust on the fly. But they kind of mapped that out. And then I had someone who would was helping me with like visas and stuff like that as well. I had two passports and I would leave one behind while I was getting a visa. And then they'd ship it to me or send it with my partner, Maggie, or whatever. It was it was a logistical nightmare, as you can imagine. <laughs> and then I'd work with someone for booking hotels. But it would usually be, you know, I'd be in one stop and I'd be booking the stuff for the next stop and very little time to prepare, very little time to do any research. Uh, It was really a lot of I'd get to a new place. I'd probably spend the first day. I wouldn't leave my hotel because I'd be writing this piece for this place before. And then I'd just go out and see what happens and then do the same thing, get on a plane and then do the same thing in the next place. So it was like nothing else I've done before. I've never traveled like that before. And, you know, the trip that changed me, I think that's that's a big part of it was was it changed the way I travel in a lot of ways. I'm much more comfortable figuring things out on the fly than I was before. Definitely. What was your first stop and how did you feel setting off for it? Um, it was Puerto Rico. So semi-local, which was nice. Um, I speak Spanish, too, which was nice. It was a, it was a good transition. Funnily, though, you know how travel the world of travelers can be. There was a lot of controversy when I tweeted something about how I was going to check in a bag um, and people were horrified that I was going to try to check in a bag for the 52 places trip because they were like, the bag's going to get lost and you're going to be stranded somewhere. How can you call yourself a traveler and you still check in bags? Everyone knows you got to go carry on only. Of course, I'm packing for like Tahiti and Siberia in the same suitcase, right? So how do you do that? But I I kind of, yeah, someone, someone like made a Twitter account called 52 places luggage that was like that set out to like track where my bags were and like was making fun of the fact that it was that I was going to be lost somewhere in in <laughs> Tunisia at some point. Anyway, it became a whole thing. Did they get lost? My first stop, Puerto Rico, my bag doesn't arrive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it showed up two days later, but there was a lot of uh, I told you so going on um, around that. But so it was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a rocky first start. Puerto Rico was also still recovering from Hurricane Maria. And it was there were some infrastructural issues, you know, my where I was staying, the power was going off every now and then and things like that. So it was a, it was a, it wasn't a super cushy first stop by any means, um, but it was also it was incredible. It was such a great place to 
And the biggest thing I learned was, I mean, just having needing to find a story in each place. It wasn't enough mm. for me to, to, for my column to just be, I did this, then I did this, then I did this. Like that's a right. travel journal. I needed to like find stories to tell. Um, and the pressure that that put on, it was tough at times. It was stressful at times, but it made me do things and like take risks and talk to strangers and try new things and, and all the things, all the reasons we travel, it made me do that tenfold because I wanted to come away with a story to tell. And I think, you know, Puerto Rico was an example of that. I, I hit the ground running. I met someone through someone else. Next thing I know, I was far from the capital and we were like hopping between all these lechon places where they roast like the whole pig on the spit. I was getting a tour of that, ended up at like an organic farm. And then we all went out at night and watched this incredible live bomba and plena music that was happening. All these experiences that I think if I was just a solo traveler, you know, maybe I would have spent a whole afternoon on the beach or I would have done a walking tour of San Juan like everyone does. And then maybe go back to my hotel. And like the fact that I was like, no, I need to I need to do more. I need to see more. I need to talk to more people really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And and that's how I found stories was by being out of my comfort zone. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that because clearly you didn't have that much time to prepare for each place, not enough time to kind of do a deep dive online or figure out what the culture is. What were your tactics for finding the stories besides, well, it sounds like one of them was speaking to people, mm -hmm. making local friends. Were there anything, was there anything else that served you when you were looking for stories? People was a, was a huge part, leaning into serendipity. And I think that could take the form of people, but I think it could also take the form of I, I'm walking through Plovdiv, Bulgaria on a long walk and I see a sign that I don't understand, but it looks like it's pointing out a hiking trail of some sort in the middle of the city. And I say, you know what, I'm just going to follow it. I've got no agenda, but my day is mine. I don't have to, anywhere to be. And then that would lead to something else. And I'd suddenly discover one hill and then I'd figure out that there's seven hills in Plovdiv. And then suddenly I have my story because I'm bouncing between the seven hills of Plovdiv, Bulgaria. And, you know, just just following following my nose in a lot of ways and and sometimes there'd be dead ends but most of the time um just by being open to not having an itinerary and and going for extremely long aimless walks where i wouldn't even plan i wouldn't even look at google maps i wouldn't even plan it out i would just step out of my hotel and the great thing about google maps is that once once i am lost i can use it to find my way back but it doesn't matter where i go so i would just walk and walk and walk and and next thing i know i'm talking to a stranger or I'm, finding a cool museum that wasn't in the guidebooks because it's it's small and local or you know I'm in Tunis and I hear these sounds coming from this this small little building and I follow the sounds and suddenly I'm watching like a traditional music class take place and it's all these young people learning these old Tunisian instruments that is part of this and then I find out about this dying tradition there and then suddenly I'm talking to them and then that person is inviting me to a hip-hop show it's just it's it spirals and uh I think just being open to that was 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 how I found it um was how I found stories so much of your success in the storytelling seems to be related to being able to bond with people quickly I feel like that's part of being a journalist as well you know like speaking to someone getting them to trust you and feel comfortable with you enough to you know, reveal something or give you some a little tidbit of information. Mm. What are some of the ways that you speed up that kind of connection? Mm -hmm. I think one of the ones that I learned most on this trip was just being honest about your own ignorance and being open about it. And 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 I think there's a tendency, especially with seasoned travelers, to want to show off what you know, right? So you say like you know, you're in Copenhagen, you're like, well, I've been to Copenhagen before, and I love this place. So I'm gonna go to this, you know, and, and that that's the end of the conversation with this, with that's the so local, because right? they're, they're gonna be like, okay, yeah, okay, so you're good. All right. But I would go to a place, even if it's a place that I had read about a lot, or I thought I knew, or, um, you know, even if I was in, when I was in India, and I've lived in India for five and a half years, I'm half Indian. Even there, I think it was just about, in the conversations I was having with people, I'd be like, Okay, I just arrived. I got like, what should I do? Like, what what is this place? Explain to me like where you're from. You know, just being very open about the fact that as much as I thought I knew, compared to someone who lives and breathes that place, I know nothing. And I think being open about that, it just opens so many doors immediately because people want to show you their home. They want to I, I would feel that way too. If I ran in, you know, if I met someone in New York and they said, like, should I go to 
spend my whole time in Times Square because I read that I should hang out in Midtown. Like I would probably get pretty passionate about them doing something else and going somewhere else and where they should eat and the bars they should go to and everything else. And I think other people are the same way. But if you go into a travel situation with things already set, you know that you want to hit these three restaurants you saw on Instagram and you want you want to go to this place that you've been to before. Cool. That's that's your trip. Then that's the end. But if you go saying, hey, I, I like I, I know nothing. Suddenly you have a guide um, to that place because they they want to counter your your ignorance. That's <laughs> such a great tip. I love that. In a world full of rewards programs, there's never been one quite as fantastic as MGM Rewards. Now, guests and friends of MGM Resorts can earn and redeem on countless things they love to do most. Have the meal of a lifetime, go on the ultimate date night, see a show that blows your mind, stay in a baller suite, shop till you drop, make the spa your second home, or just find a nice loud corner for some bottle service. Introducing MGM Rewards. Why be a guest when you can be a member? Visit mgmrewards.com for more details. Subject to earning and redemption limitations applicable to certain purchases and in certain states. I know this is a really hard question because you had so many different experiences, but can you think of one that left a particularly big impression on you? Like one you find yourself reminiscing about or retelling again and again over the years? Yeah, I think... Can I cheat and give you two? Yeah. Two for two for different reasons. One, I think, shows the power of serendipity and rolling, just rolling with things as they come. And the other um, is really about people. Um, the first, and I guess they're both about people too, but the first one was in Uzbekistan and I was in Samarkand, which is an incredible city with incredible history. And I had hired this guide. So I like heard about through other people and he was great, whatever. And I hired him for the day. He took me around the city like a kind of in a personal tour of Samarkand. He was very passionate about the history and everything. We, but we also just like got along very well. And it like some, it, it some, it very quickly became clear that this was going to be less of like a guide tourist relationship. And we were going to just be kind of friends. And cause like, you know, the, the tour ended and we were like, okay, you want to go get dinner? You know, it was like that kind of tour. And so we got along very well. And we he the next day he took me on another tour also paid like you know i was i hired him again because we got along so well and at the end of that day he's like i'd love to show you something really special that's happening tomorrow i don't want to tell you what it is but if you're down like be ready in your lo- in the lobby at like 8 a.m and i was like okay cool this could be the last thing i ever do i'm gonna be like disappear somewhere or this could be incredible so i i said whatever so i go down at 8 a.m the next day he's there um, and he drives me like two hours outside of the city. And I was like, what's happening? Like, where are we going? Um, we stop in this little village and this old man comes out and gets into the back seat. And he's like, oh, that's my dad. He just, he wants to come to where we're going. So I'm just, I'm, he's coming with us. I'm like, okay, great. So we drive another 30 minutes or so and we get to this huge field and there's like, I don't know, thousands of people. And in the middle, there's this scrum of maybe 50 60 horses, people on horseback. And what it is, it was a game of uh, Kopkari, also called Buskashi, which is like this sport that's played in Central Asia um, that has roots in sort of nomadic traditions. And there's this dead goat that is stuffed with salt or whatever. And it becomes like a, it's like a game of keep away with this dead goat. So they, these guys on horseback fight over this dead goat and then they, they carry the carcass on their horses to this target in the middle of the field and they're all fighting for it and they win like a prize each round. And it was unbelievable to witness that as like an outsider. I was the only person, you know, not from a 10 mile radius of this village to witness this. And, you know, he was he was like making sure I was OK, but also just kind of let me go and meet people. And I was talking to people. People were like confused and excited that I was there. Of course, I tend to blend in in a lot of places, including in Uzbekistan. So I think everyone just thought I was Uzbek until I opened my mouth. And then they're like, what the hell are you from? What are you doing here? But just to like have that, that to witness that part of the culture that like, I think a lot of people miss to have someone who trusted me enough to show me that part of the culture felt that I was deserving to, to be there. And we just like had such a good time. I don't know. I just felt very special. And I felt very thankful that I was 
that I followed that serendipitous path instead of being, you know, instead of listening to that voice in my head that's saying like, oh, you can't do that. That's going to be your whole day. What if it's what if it's a wash and then you've wasted this whole day, you know? So that that's one experience that just blew me away, both because of what I witnessed and how I got there. And then the other one is is less, I guess, less uh, spectacular in some ways. But I was in Orcas Island in uh, Washington State, Pacific Northwest, and I was staying on this farm, this like family run farm. And it was also my birthday. And I was, you know, spend my birthday alone on this island. It was like I was feeling like a little down about it, especially because I was in the US. So I was close to a lot of friends, but I was on assignment and kind of hadn't seen them in a long time. Hadn't seen my family in a long time either. And uh, I don't remember how exactly we were like, I think just in casual conversations, the son like in the family who ran the farm caught wind that it was my birthday. And or maybe I like posted something on Instagram and he saw it. I don't I don't remember. But he was like, we got to do something. And basically, I just got like invited into this family on this farm. They they had they run a no kill farm like it's a people come to like they, they do eggs and stuff and and the kids pet goats and all that. But they made an exception and they killed a duck for me <laughs> and we killed this duck and plucked. I plucked the duck and we made the duck for dinner along with all this other stuff. We just had this like huge feast, three generations up to like the 104 year old great grandmother who was there. And they just like it, when it wasn't like wasn't even like we're doing this as a special thing for you. It was just it just felt like normal. They were just like I just felt like I was part of the, part of this family for a day, right? As we prepared dinner together and sat around and just like talked. And I think it made it into the story, but it wasn't necessarily like reporting either. It was just it was just having an experience on my birthday in this part of the world, and I'll and I'll I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget that family and. I'm still in touch with them today. And I'm still in touch with that guy in Uzbekistan. We text all the time. So yeah, I think those are two experiences that stick out to me. And I think it's no coincidence that both involve people because I think that was a huge shift in the way that I think about travel um, from that year was was that I 100% prioritize meeting people now. I think that's, that is the reason to travel more than anything else. And when I think back to my best travel experiences, like, you know, I saw a solar eclipse in Chile. I hung out with a penguin colony in the Falkland Islands. I saw incredible mountains and valleys and stuff in, in the South Island of New Zealand. And that was all amazing. And I think there's something to say to the, for the power of awe and nature and everything to, to rewire your brain. But the stuff that sticks out to me most when I think back on that year, especially, are I, I like see faces. I see like the woman in Denmark who like took off work for a week just to show me around Aalborg and like the family in, in Washington and the, the guide in, in Uzbekistan and the bartender in Japan, like the people who like, I just created these connections with, even if they were fleeting, that's what sticks out to me. And I think that's why I travel going forward. Mm. I think that's a really nice way of, of looking at it. Because yeah, I have, this, I have similar experiences. The times when I've loved travel most has always been when I've met people and they might be locals or they might be other travelers, but for whatever mm -hmm. reason, that connection makes the place feel more special and the experiences deeper. Totally. Absolutely. You said earlier that it, this was the best job you've had, but also the hardest job you've had. Can you talk a bit about some of the tougher aspects of the assignment? Yeah. I mean, one was just fatigue. I was just, I was constantly exhausted. I like, I was tired for a year, which is a strange feeling to have where you just, you wake up tired, you go to sleep tired. And I think it, you know, I, it's miraculous, but I didn't get sick until the second to last stop. I got a cold in Tahiti of all places, but until then I didn't get sick. I think my body was just running on adrenaline. It was, I think my body was telling me like, just one more stop, one more stop. You just need to get through this year. Cause if I had got sick, it would have just completely put a rent, like everything would get out of sync. The schedule would be all screwed up. So um, that was, that was one of the toughest. I think also just the the demands of the like deliverables of the job, right? Like I couldn't, I couldn't phone it in ever. I had to file the 2000 words. I had to file photos. I had to stay on social media. And I think that that was really hard. I was working in digital media before at Condé Nast Traveler, but it was still a magazine. Um, and I think like some of that thinking goes in and I was working in features. So I would, you know, I would spend two months on a piece, right? I would come back from so a trip. So luxurious. I, would, I know, <laughs> just take my time and procrastinate for weeks and weeks and then of course write it in like three hours as, as it always happens but <laughs> I couldn't do that I had to just sit down and write I couldn't uh, writer's block didn't exist right I had to I had to deliver every week so I had to be less precious about my copy and and all of that so that that was a learning experience I think it was also hard to for some of these places 
to leave. Honestly, there are places where like I have because of the schedule. I don't like, especially when I was in the Europe part, we tried to cram in a lot where I didn't even have a week in some of these places. I'd be in like Lyon and Marseille were separate entries in the 52 places list. But I think I spent three days in each and wrote one column about both, you know, and Marseille is actually a great example of a place where I was just like, I wish I could just be here for another week. Like there's so much more I have to experience. I'm just starting to get the feel for a place. And now I have to move on to the next one. Or Dakar, Senegal is another example where that was one of the places where my partner Maggie came out to visit. And after a week there, we were both like, spend another week here easily. Like there's all these things on our list that we, did, we didn't do yet. There's all these recommendations we got from people we've met that we weren't able to do. So that, that was a really tough part where I was just like, I want to like relax in a place, which was impossible because I always had to be in go mode. So I'd say those, those were the hardest parts of it, for sure. Human brains are like these meaning-making machines, right? And mm-hmm. we always are drawing these constellations and these connections between everything that we experience. What were some of the similarities or universals between cultures that you recognized and how did that impact you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a great way of framing it too. I think, I mean, like I'm a broken record here, but I I really do think the common denominator was people's generosity. And it was like, it was completely across cultures and and, and it was completely across political disagreements. You know, I I would, having like drunken conversations with people in 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 the woods of this country of Georgia, this guy's like, and it's very topical now. This was 2019, but you know, a guy drunkenly talking about how amazing Putin was and how amazing life under the Soviet Union was and all this stuff. Just completely different lived experience from me, completely different view of things than me. But like we were able to, he was still hosting me and he was still making sure my wine was never like even half full. And he was still, he wasn't trying to start arguments. He was, it was an exchange. And when I started talking and telling him how I felt about that, he listened, refilled my wine and we got back into it. Like it was that hospitality was still there. And I think it across the board, wherever I was, whatever disagreements we might have had politically or whatever else, that was always there, no matter where I was in the world. And it made me reconsider how I act. And I think that that's like one of the greatest things you can learn from travel is something that makes you change. And I think I hope it's gonna it's made me a more open and hospitable person myself. Because I mean, I you know, I had encounters with complete strangers who would drop everything and start helping me and show me around and introduce me to their families and their friends. And of course, my first thought is, would I do that? You know, if, if I ran into someone in New York who was looking a little lost, would I really like drop everything and take them to my favorite bar and introduce them to my friends? Probably not. And it makes you then question why not. And I think I don't think I'm quite there yet in figuring it out. But I think it did rewire my brain a little bit in in terms of re-examining why I do certain things or why I don't do certain things and what I can learn from all the friends I've made while traveling. And that, the lesson about being able to sit down with people with opposing, very different opposing views to you is very useful in the US as well. Oh, 100%, 100%. And I think, and it's not necessarily that you have to like, you know, roll over and, and, and accept what's coming at you because sometimes it can it can be just offensive right and and you should call that out and you should engage with that but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the encounter or the end of the interaction maybe it's a learning experience for you maybe it's a learning experience for them maybe the next morning when you know timur woke up with a hangover as bad as mine was he thought about how much fun he had and he maybe reconsidered some of the things he might have said about how great authoritarianism is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, maybe I reconsidered what I knew. And maybe I, I thought about, you know, people of his generation in a new light, that, that there were certain things that he clearly, certain like certainties and things that he grew up with within the Soviet Union that he doesn't have now, I had never thought of in that light, right? And I think, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's gonna, it makes you think, it makes you question whether or not it completely changes your mind. It's, it's still a useful exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's always, good to investigate the gray area because really all of life is just gray area so anyone who can help you examine that it's a useful interaction absolutely yeah at the start of this conversation you said that you know you had a bit of a interesting relationship to the concept of home because you've always Mm. moved around so much but I'm curious to know whether this trip in particular made you think about home in a different way like how did it feel for you coming back to New York to your partner after all of those weeks on the road did you feel like you were going home then I did. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've actually never thought about it in those terms, which is strange. But the way you put it, I think that's um, 
I think you're right that it, it did. I looked forward to it in a way that I think I hadn't looked forward to being at home in, you know, all, all I wanted to do was like sit on the couch with the cat on my lap and play video games, you know, um, and hang out with my partner, of course. But like, that's what I missed about things when I was on the road, when I was having all these incredibly enriching experiences. So coming back to that, maybe did kind of rewire the concept of home or at least introduce it in a way that hadn't been there for a long time. And I think the 52 Places trip also taught me maybe that I can actually have pretty profound encounters and engagements with the rest of the world, even if it's five days at a time. Right. I, I think I had always thought like you need to like try to go as deep as possible. And, you know, I lived in Indonesia for five years. I only scratched the surface, but like that's how you engage with a place by like going really deep. But I think it's less about time spent or whatever. It's especially if you if you admit, first of all, that you're never going to like get the place, you're never going to understand it in five days. You can at least go in with a mindset that leaves you open enough to have an enriching experience, even if it is in over the course of three days. So I think it's maybe more comfortable with the thought of living in one place for, for a while, which I hadn't really, I'd always thought I needed to grow, I needed to raise my kids, which I'll have one day the same way I was raised and, and live on the road and move around. But I think there's, that was a, one, an incredibly privileged existence and two, an existence that was a, was kind of a, just a, a result of the circumstances of my father's work and all that, which is, it's, it's hard to replicate, right? Especially today. But I think there's ways that I can make sure the next generation, my kids, if they ever come along or whatever, can engage with the world in the same way that I, I my parents encouraged me to without necessarily, you know, living the expat life or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think it did teach me that in a lot of ways, which I'm not really, I wish I never realized until you mentioned it. So good question. <laughs> I think like sometimes being somewhere for a shorter amount of time is actually beneficial because, for example, when I first moved to New York, I felt like there was an openness to me mm. that meant that I was absorbing a lot more. I was like more open to you know speaking to strangers over time. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, like, why don't I stop someone on the street and say, are you, you know, where are you going? Do you need help? Yeah. Like, can I take you to this bar? But I think that I would have been more likely to do that when I very first moved here, whereas over time, I've gotten kind of into my little New York zone and I don't pay as much attention. I'm not as kind of open-minded and open-hearted as I was when I first got here. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think that's totally true. And I think, I mean, I don't know about for you, but I think also the pandemic shifted, rewired things for me too in, in my relationship with New York or wherever I call home I'm in that moment because I... It was, it was, I could only engage with it. The world was closed for a little while, right? So I started noticing things about my neighborhood that I'd never noticed before. I, you know, I biked, I got really into cycling and I would bike all the way to New Jersey and for the weekends. And I was like, wow, New Jersey's beautiful. What, is, what are people talking about? Um, you know, just like I engaged with home <laughs> in a new way. And I think we're going to be doing that a lot more as we also like consider the environmental cost of travel. I, I and I'm, you know, one to talk, right? With that 52 places trip, I took 88 flights in a year. And I think we're going to have to engage with our backyard, our own backyards in new ways. And I'm excited to do that. And I've already been doing that. And I think it, yeah, just puts, it puts home in a new light um, every, each time you learn something new about it. Mm -hmm. And I know now you're working as editor at large of the new planet. Very cool job also. Thank you. I'm curious to know if you can recognize in some of the ways you work now, the lessons that you learned on, during 52 places kind of playing out in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest is the importance I put on story now and like finding a story. And I think even more than that, it's, it's actually through finding a story. I think it's also pulling out universals, right? Like I want, I want to tell stories about, tra I think travel is interesting because it's so reflective of, of the world, obviously. But I want to tell stories that like, you know, I, I just got back from Antarctica, right? And I, I'm, I'm currently working on a story about Antarctica um, as we talk. And most people aren't, aren't going to go to Antarctica. Like it's prohibitively expensive. It's hard to get to to begin with. It's, it's, there's limited spots, right? As it probably, you know, arguably should be because it's such a delicate part of the world. But I want to tell a story that like, yes, if someone is going to Antarctica, they're going to read it and get excited and maybe learn a thing or two and bring some lessons to their trip to Antarctica. But I also want someone who's never going to go to Antarctica, who's never even thought about it, who's never even going to consider it. 
I still want them to read it and like learn something about the world and their place in it and reconsider the way they've thought about how they engage with now, maybe not, you know, penguins at the bottom of the world, but how they engage with the state park that's an hour away from them or their own backyard. And I think the 52 places trip was that every week, every, every time I was writing a story, I was like, okay, yes, I want to like recount what I did in Tunis, but I don't want it to be like, I did this, I did this, I did this. Also, it definitely can't be these are the five best restaurants in Tunis because I only spent five days there and only ate really at five restaurants, right? So I'm, I'm not going to be the authority in terms of giving guidance about this. So what can I offer? And I hope the answer to that was, you know, a window to the world and a, a lens through which to reconsider yourself and your own, your own place in the world through whatever lessons I, I gathered during my travels. And I think that's what I've brought to my storytelling now. And that's what I look for both as an editor and a writer. When I'm editing a piece, I'm like, okay, what's the takeaway here for someone who's never going to go to this place, who's never going to interact directly with this place? Because I think that's what the best travel storytelling does. And I think that's why we travel to begin with. I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, is to connect with those universals that I'm hoping to highlight, I guess. A lovely note to finish on. (laughs) Thank you so much. You've been amazing. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I think I might have applied for 52 Places in 2018. And I was like, this is truly, yeah, like it's truly a dream job. Yeah, yeah. So it's so interesting to hear you talk about it. I mean, I think literally everyone in the world applied in 2018. (laughs) Or at least everyone who had an interest in travel or writing or both. Right, Um, exactly. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. uh, This was really fun. Where can people find you on the internet? So I am at Seb Modak, S-E-B-M-O-D-A-K on Instagram and Twitter on LonelyPlanet.com. You'll find a lot of the stuff that I'm working on and keep an eye on it because there's a lot more to come. Before you go, do you have time for a quick fire round? Absolutely. Let's do it. (laughs) What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Oh, this is a quick fire round. <laughs> in ideal circumstances, if you could go anywhere in the world and experience it, it would be a bowl of hot noodles, your choice. It can be pho, it can be whatever, on a plastic stool in an alleyway in Hanoi with a glass of beer with ice in it. And it's, you know, 100 degrees out and you're just sweating into this bowl of soup and it's the best meal you've ever had. That's what everyone should experience at some point. Well, I'm sure that that's also the answer to this question, because if you could only eat one cuisine for the rest of your life, Ooh. what would it be? Um, this is a cop out, I think, but I think I'm going to say <laughs> Singaporean because it's such a... Really? A, it's a, Very eclectic. Well, it's such a blend. It's really like, mm. by saying that, I'm really saying like three cuisines, right? Because it's all of Asia basically colliding in one place. And I, I to this day, will say it's the best food city in, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. I had great Indian food there many mm. years ago. It was very good. Yeah. What's the thing you never ever travel without? My my one of my biggest learnings, and I'm a broken record on this, um, from 52 places was the like wizardry of merino wool. So I'd say the one thing that I never travel without is like merino wool. Everything at this point, that stuff is like magic. I don't really understand how it works, but it like keeps you warm when it's cold. It cools you off when it's hot. I wore it in like the Gambia when it was like, I don't know, a hundred degrees. And so I sweated through it like all day. And then you put it up to dry and the next day it's like new. Like I don't understand it. It's and it's just comes from a sheep. It doesn't make any sense. So that's that's the stuff that that I don't travel without now. That's such a good answer. <laughs> and so true. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Um right now, considering it's the middle of winter, I think it would be somewhere in West Africa, maybe Senegal. And I would just uh, hop between music venues all day and just listen to music and, and uh, you know, dance a bit and maybe play some drums and, and hang out with musicians. That's kind of what I'm feeling right now. But if you ask me tomorrow, it'll probably be a different answer. Name a destination that you consider to be massively underrated. Mm. I'm going to say, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to say Plovdiv, Bulgaria. I, I mean, I think this time of year, especially, or maybe like in a month, I was there right when spring was like hitting full, you know, the air was full of birds chirping. You can like go on a hike in the middle of the city. It's the second biggest city in in Bulgaria, but it feels like a small town. Everyone was so friendly. It's just like infinitely wonderable. 
Yeah, I, I, it was one of the first places over the 52 places trip that I, where I was traveling and I was walking around being like, I could imagine myself like renting out that apartment up there and like living here for six months or so and just hanging out and writing and going to the cafe downstairs. I don't know. It's just like it was a really good vibe of a place. And I think Bulgaria to begin with, I think is probably underrated. And I think if people go, they probably go to the capital and maybe do some hiking in the countryside, but they miss the second city, which I think is a wonderful place. What's a book, podcast, or show that you'd recommend for a long journey? I'll, I'll plug a book. Um, this is fresh in my mind because I was rereading a part of it yesterday. It's called An African in Greenland. I don't know if you've read that. Um, it's by, I'm not going to pronounce this properly, but Tet, Tet Michel Kupomasi. Um, and I believe he's from Togo. And he, it's a true story. He was, uh, sorry, this is not a lightning rod. He was, um, <laughs> when, he was, he was when he was a kid, <laughs> when he was a kid in, in Togo, he would, he was like one of 12 kids or something. And he'd go to the, this bookstore and like reading books. He got obsessed with Greenland. Um, this is like in the 60s or 70s. And Greenland, it just, he's in Togo. He was like reading about Greenland and, you know, the, the Greenlandic people and Inuit people and, and sled dogs and all this stuff. And he just like created this image of it in his imagination. And then one day he just went. He like essentially ran away from home and made his way from Togo to Greenland overland. It took him like multiple years um, to get there. And then he just shows up in Greenland. And it's the first, this is like, again, like the 1970s, I think. It's the first African person that anyone in Greenland had ever seen at that point, um, at least in, in, you know, not in t- on TV or whatever else. And he just like lived there for, I forget how long. And it's just an incredible travel journey. I think it's also like an underrepresented point of view in travel writing. So to see him discussing it, someone from that background, um, I think is really refreshing and nice to see. And just a really cool adventure story. And I think I read recently that he's retiring now. He's like in his 80s and he's going to go retire back in Greenland because he misses it so much. That's cool. And he, he said he wants to spend like his final days back in Greenland, which is which is so cool. Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my book recommendation right now. And finally, where is next on your travel list? I'm uh, really interested in like polar or semi-polar regions now after coming back from Antarctica. I say, you know, I, the people, I, like I said, people is, is paramount importance to my travels, but also so is nature. And I think there's no, like the nature near our poles is just unbelievable. And I think it's worth sharing. So right now I'm, I'm, I've got my eyes on the Faroe Islands. I'd love to go there. But honestly, who knows? We'll see. It, it, it'll probably be for work, whatever it is. Um, so we'll see where I end up going. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Maybe I'll see you around uh, the neighborhood. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.